Let's allow that thought to spend some time in our hearts as we go to prayer. Our Father, may we think deeply about that truth, the richness of Christ, that you have reached into our lives and drawn us to yourself, not because there was anything good in us, and not because we loved you first, but because you first loved us. And so, our Father, we come before you this morning with repentant hearts, asking you to forgive us for the many ways we do not find you sufficient, the many ways we act out a different storyline than that Jesus is enough and Jesus is my life. The many ways we, our lives are not a hallelujah to that truth. But Father, we, um, we're here this morning because we want you to fill our hearts with your presence, with your grace, with your love, and with the Holy Spirit. We need you to fill us, O oh God that we may present ourselves before you as children devoted to you, our Father. Bring honor to you, glory. Thank you, Lord. Now, as we pause for time in your word, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be responsive and open. I pray that we would not be distracted. I pray that the powerful presence of the Spirit of God would hover over this meeting and that you, O God, would get glory to yourself alone and that your word would be like a hammer in our hearts, shaping us and reshaping us, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, 38 years ago this past Thursday, I married the lovely Lynn. So many wonderful memories as I was thinking about this past week and celebrating that milestone. And I was trying to think of that uh, wedding day and that wedding time, and my mind drifted towards... um, the gifts, you know, that you get at wedding time. And I was trying to remember who gave us what and all of that, and I could only remember one gift from one person. It was a gift that we opened up, and, uh, and as we were examining the product, there was a card underneath the gift that said, Congratulations, Bob and Carol. not their real names to protect the guilty. Yes, we were re-gifted. Who of you haven't re-gifted anyone? I don't want to see your hands. There's something unsettling about a re-gift, isn't there? Because you, you start to think about, well, how much effort did they put into their demonstration of love for us? Um, 
they probably received several of these, so they picked out the best one for themselves and sent the one they didn't like to you. Or they didn't like the product at all, and so they thought, well, let's give it to Rick and Lynn. By the time Malachi was writing his prophecy, that's exactly what the people of God were doing to him. They were re-gifting him, giving him their second-hand emotions, giving them their cast-offs and the things that didn't matter to them. This is the last time God is going to speak to his people, revelatory, for 450 years. There's spiritual radio silence after this. So God presents to his people a kind of a last patient effort at seeking repentance, seeking to have their lives changed. The relationship clearly, as you look at this, between God and many of his people had taken a toxic turn. When a relationship really means something to you, there are certain things you do and don't do, right? You certainly aren't apathetic and antagonistic. And that's exactly what we find here in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. They were demonstrating signs of severe unhealth toward the relationship with the living God. They were complaining about time and effort they were putting into him. They were trashing their relationships. They were withholding money. They were resenting their service to the Lord. And they were highly critical of how God was running things. These were all symptoms of a greater issue. And God met the real issue head on right from the beginning. In verse 2, he says this, I have loved you, but you ask, how have you loved us? That's the real issue that surfaced immediately. You don't think that I love you, do you? That's what basically God is saying to them. You, you think I don't love you. Nothing will send our spiritual life into a quicker tailspin than if we come to the idea or notion that maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't care for me. Our covenant relationship with Christ and, of course, our covenant relationship with Christ, our, our, our relationship that has been forged for us by a loving Father, the genuineness of our faith can be put at jeopardy. Or it may be dying or it may be dead. I don't know what state you're in right now, but I know this, that our covenant relationship with God is forged on love. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, body, and strength. And in 1 John 4, verse 19, John the Apostle reminds us that we love him because he first loved us. If we lose the sensitivity to the idea that God first loved us, we will struggle to love him back. And it manifests itself in very unhealthy ways. If our convictions about that start to waver, we can get in trouble really fast. So where are you at this morning? Because God has something to say to us from the book of Malachi 
about getting our second-hand emotions. And the truth of the matter is this, that there are five, tale, five telltale signs that your relationship with the Lord is not healthy in this text. A love for God problem becomes a worship problem, becomes a family relationship problem, becomes an offering problem, becomes a service problem. I'll repeat that. A love of God problem becomes a worship problem, becomes a family relationship problem, becomes an offering problem, becomes a service problem. Five things that God pointed out here in this particular text. In a few moments, we are going to publicly recommit ourselves to our covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it communion. We call it the Lord's table. We are going to gather here and publicly together by this act of symbol, we are going to say, we believe that God loves us and we love God. But it's highly possible in the room this morning that we are struggling with that relationship. That we might just go through the motions of the Lord's table and actually be hypocritical about our relationship with God. Because unless our sense of God's love for us is crackling and on fire, we are in trouble. And there are a lot of reasons why that could be happening. So let's look at this. The first is you find yourself regularly questioning God's love for you. God, God declares, I've loved you. And they say, really? Because we're not noticing it. We, we look around at our day-to-day -day experience and it, frankly, is horrible. And all I know is that if I was all-powerful like you are and I had children like us and you loved and I love the children, I would make every day of their lives a super day. I would make it a life of ease. You have the power to do that. So we're not really seeing that you love us. God doesn't go to the daily experiences in his defense. He goes to identity, eternal realities. See, let me just say something right to you at the very front. If you decide to spend your days measuring God's love for you on the basis of how each day went, your progress in your relationship with God is going to be very miserable. God doesn't talk to them about each day. He says this, was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, and they say, yeah, so what about it? Well, Esau was the firstborn. Yeah, so? Well, it would be normal to choose the firstborn to favor. But I have loved Jacob. Not, not because there was anything special about you, Jacob, another reference to Israel, not, not because the, you deserved it, you were second in line. I decided, although you were twin brothers, 
I decided to choose to love you. I decided to choose to put my covenant love relationship on you. And so it is this morning with us as we sit here and wonder, you know, yeah, you know what? My week hasn't been all that great. In fact, my month hasn't been great. In fact, the last couple of years haven't been very great. I'm wondering if God does love me. Wait a second. Stop. Stop. There are seven billion people in the world, seven plus billion people in the world. Yet God chose to place his affection on you. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, he chose to place his affection of love on you. Not because of anything you did. Not because of anything good in your life. Not because of any special gifting that you have or bring to the table. Not, not because of, uh, of any status you've maintained uh, or attained in life. In fact, yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ chose to die for you and for me. That's what we're going to recognize in a few moments. We're going to recognize the undeserved love and favor of God on us. And he's basically saying, is there anything you really need to say about that? How have I loved you? I chose to love you. I could have picked Esau, who you are presently envying with the great building of Petra and all the things you see around there. And, and you, in verse 4, though we have been, Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we'll rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. But you are called the holy land. How have I loved you? You've landed in pleasant places without deserving one bit of it. I have plucked you out of oblivious damnation to become my treasured possession. That's what he says at the very end in chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, verse 17. Then they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Do you realize that those who fear the Lord, those who love Jesus Christ, he is collecting us as his treasured possession? How have I loved you? I'm going to love you for all of eternity. You're comparing your day to the destiny of the hopeless, the eternally dying, the abandoned wicked. Look around. Look around at their reality. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, verse 6, if I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, and the many questions they ask through this text, how have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you? He answers the question, you place defiled food on my altar. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? 
The second telltale sign that you are struggling in your relationship with the living God, that you are struggling to believe he loves you, is you feel like your attempts at worship are not worth your time and that your sin is no big deal. How have we shown contempt? How have we defiled you? You realize what they were doing? They were bringing their seconds. They were bringing their cast-offs. They were bringing their roadkill to sacrifice. They were bringing stuff that they couldn't use themselves and saying, here, God, you have this. It's no good for us. We can't use it. Here, you have it. At the very place where they were to sacrifice, at the very place where they were to place their sacrifice between their sin and the wrath of God, they were placing crap. Literally, you'll see that. You will never, ever love God very much if you think that his forgiveness of your sins is no big deal. There was a story in the New Testament where... um, Stated there, a sinful woman comes into a gathering where Jesus is having lunch with some Pharisees. And she comes in with a a bottle of very costly uh, anointing oil and comes over and pours it on Jesus' feet and proceeds to wipe it off and her tears are streaming down her face. And the self-righteous Pharisees say to Jesus, or say to actually keep kept it to themselves, but he knew what they were thinking. If he knew who she was, he would never let this happen. The simple truth is Jesus knew exactly who she was, knew exactly what she had done, knew, knew exactly what she was doing, knew exactly what kind of a heart and what kind of a lifestyle she had been living. She had come to receive forgiveness from the Lord. He takes the opportunity to turn to the apostle Peter, disciple, who's with him, and says, Peter, do you realize something? That those who've been forgiven much love much, and those who've been forgiven little love little. Beloved, I don't know how you view your sinfulness. I don't know how you view your life. But I have been forgiven much. I I never ever come to a setting where I'm thinking about the forgiveness of Christ and think about my sin as being no big deal. I never stand at the foot of the cross and think about my Savior who took the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet and the spear in his side and the mockery of the crowd for my sins and never ever think my sins aren't a big deal. I always think they're a big deal. And here they were, ceremonially at the place of sacrifice, the place where they were to acknowledge their sin and receive forgiveness. And that forgiveness is stunning, and all they could bring is rejected offerings to stand in as their sacrifice between the wrath of God and their sin. The place of repentance. The place of restoration of fellowship. 
And they were treating the covenant, God's loving covenant, that covered them from being vaporized by a holy God with contempt. And we're saying, how are we treating you with contempt? How are we defiling you? They were dishonoring his name. He says to them literally, shut the doors, verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. Just shut the door. Let's not have a service anymore. Let's not gather together and worship. If that's all you think of our relationship, let's, let's have worship no more. Shut the doors. You turn up your nose at having to bring worship to me, the one who has forgiven you. You look at your watch and wonder when we can get out of here because this is so boring being with God. I got Jay's tickets. I got to get out of here. You bring blemished animals when you are supposed to bring an unblemished male animal. Do you realize what the sacrifice is? The sacrifice is the symbol of a substitute so that your sins can be forgiven. It's a symbol of the ultimate sacrifice that was about to come, the unblemished male son of the Father in heaven. The legitimate substitute for the blemished worshipers like you and like me. Make no mistake about it, worship that excludes Jesus is useless. The vast majority of our world today is somehow engaged either Friday or Saturday or Sunday or whatever their holy day is, engaged in some sort of worship. And they're bringing all kinds of weird stuff. Secondhand stuff, blemished stuff, useless stuff. Because unless we present Jesus, our worship is useless. Shut the door. It's contemptible. And the Lord God says, if you're going to bring manure worship to me, I am going to smear manure all over your face. That's what he says here in verse 3. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the parash in Hebrew. The parash. You fill in the blanks. We have all kinds of words for it. It's not good. It's not good stuff. You bring that to me, I'm going to smear it all over your face, and you can leave here as a stink face. Is God graphic enough for us? But what he thinks about crappy worship You um, might be in trouble if your, thirdly, your relationships are falling apart because you have no covenant loyalty to the family. Verse 10, chapter 2, have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? If you can break your loyalty to the living God, if you can break your loyalty to Christ, then you will be able to break your loyalty to anybody. 
Why, is, why does God place us in a covenant relationship? Why does God train us and teach us about his love for us? And why does God call us to be loyal to him? Because it trickles down into our relationships. We represent him by how we treat one another. We are distinct, distinguishing ourselves and honoring the living God by how we honor our promises, by how we honor our agreements. And in their case, Judah, verse 11, has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. What is happening now, as they had moved into exile among the Babylonians or among the Persians or whoever they were among, they were now among people who did not love God. And now the temptation was placed upon them. Will they start to marry people who don't love God? People who belong to a foreign God. Now, I'm not talking about marriages that have occurred. Word of God is not talking about marriages that have occurred and then suddenly one of the partners within the marriage becomes a follower of the living God. No, we're talking about purposely and intentionally choosing to marry someone who doesn't love God. You're breaking faith with the covenant community of faith. You're bringing a disloyal partner into the community of faith. And compromise will be inevitable. Religious compromise will be inevitable. Marriage takes compromise. Any married people here? Anybody had to compromise anything? If you didn't, you wouldn't be married today. There are good compromises and there are bad compromises. Compromising our faith with the living God is a very bad compromise. And it will inevitably lead to stealing your heart away from the living God. And as a result, of course, regularly children invariably drift away confused in those particular partnerships. So if you're contemplating breaking faith with the family of God by considering a marriage to someone who has foreign beliefs, God is speaking to you and saying don't do it. But more, another thing you do, verse 13, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you're asking why. I'll tell you why, he says. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. There are some out there who are propagating a complete lie and suggesting the Bible never says marriage is a covenant. I would suggest they just haven't read far enough into the Bible. If you get this far, you will find out that God declares it a covenant. It's a covenant that illustrates His covenant with us. His unbreakable covenant of love with us through Jesus Christ. That's what marriage illustrates. And he says here, no amount of tears will move God to reward covenant-breaking people by answering their prayers. You want heaven to shut up? Break faith with your partner in marriage. Peter got that uh, 
in 1 Peter 3, 7 from this very place. And then he goes on to say, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. Literally here, this is a very hard translation, this particular verse. But he's literally saying, divorce is like smearing your clothes with the victim's blood and parading around proudly. Look at what I've done. Uh, those of you who were married here today, you remember when you got married and you had to have witnesses sign. Yes? Remember the witnesses sign? You remember who your witnesses were? They were standing in for the heavenly witness. The ultimate witness to your marriage is the living God himself. It says right here in the text, I stand in as your witness. He witnessed our marriages. He's the one who put us together in covenant. And so he goes on to say in verse 6 of chapter 3, uh, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. If I changed, if I ever stopped loving you based on how you're living... You'd be goners. There isn't a one of us in here today who has lived a perfect, sinless life. And the Lord God says, if I were to change my mind about my commitment to you for good, for eternity, you'd be dead right now. But since I don't change my mind, you're not destroyed. And ever since the time of your forefathers, you keep turning away from my decrees. You recklessly and carelessly don't care what I tell you. You don't, it doesn't matter to you how much I tell you I love you, how much I've demonstrated I love my love for you, how much I've given you wisdom and counsel from my word. You, like rebellious children, keep turning away from me, but I don't turn away from you. And he says to them, return to me and I'll return to you. Repent. And they ask, what does that look like? How are we to return? I can't imagine what God must have thought. He says to them, well, for one thing, stop robbing me. Verse 8. Then they say, well, how do we rob you? in tithes and offerings. The fourth uh, indication that your relationship with God is toxic is that you've decided that robbing God is the best way to manage your money. How do we rob you? He says to them, well, you're keeping uh, what is mine for yourself. See, the ancient practice of honoring a superior was to Give a tenth. That's what the word tithe means, the tenths. It was an act of respect. It was an act of honor. It was an act whereby you demonstrate that you really understand that, that this individual is a superior to yours. God says, that's just a normal custom. And, and you're robbing me of the tithes and offerings. You are keeping for yourself those things that belong to me. And you are showing disrespect for me. I'm to be honored in your life. You're showing lack of gratitude toward me. I'm to be 
deemed as your provider, your giver, your gifter, your protector. And everything that you have is a stewardship. Because the stuff I'm asking for is my stuff. Now, if you've lent people some stuff of yours to look after or to use, and you pick up the phone one day and you call them and you say, I want my stuff back. And you decide that you're going to keep it and say no. What have you become? You become a thief. You are robbing people of something that belongs to them. God says, you are robbing me by holding back your tithes and your offerings. And God invites them. He says, listen, bring the whole tithe and the sorrow so there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is the only place in the Bible where you will ever see God invite you and I to test him. Because God doesn't, in every other place, put up with being tested by us. But here he says, look, you know why he says that? Because he knows we have a hard time parting with our money. So he says, if you got small faith in this, why don't you do a test run? Why don't you for a month put this on the line? Why don't you give me what is rightfully mine for a month and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and bless you and pour out? That's what he says. See if I won't pour open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Why don't you do this? Why don't we test him in this? Because we're afraid to test him. God invites you to test him on his promise to meet your generosity with his generosity. Stinginess leads to disappointing personal returns. Your earning capacity goes down. You forfeit prosperity. You're saying, well, you know what? The New Testament doesn't really teach that doesn't teach the tenth. You're right. You won't find that in the New Testament. So here's my suggestion. Why don't you go ahead and be stingy to Jesus? You can. Go ahead. Go ahead. Be stingy. You know, you want to start nickel and diming God? It's like a people who, uh, who take the risk of... of of walking the line in, in drunkenness. When is it that you've taken one too many drinks and you've gone from sobriety to drunkenness? When, can you tell me when that, when that last drink is? Can you tell me where that line is? Where's the line between pleasing God with our generosity and robbing Him? Can you tell me where that line is? We know for certain, at least in the Old Testament, that God put a number to it. I better move on to the fifth. You've said nasty things about me, God says. Can you imagine? You ever said something nasty about God? And they say, like what? Verse 13, chapter 3. Like, what have we said? Kind of like in a female junior highway you've said nasty things about me and it's kind of like 
Like what? You got a junior high? Female junior high in your family? You had one? Yeah, you ought to, you know. (laughs) And here's what they go on to say. Well, maybe we did say nasty things about you. Because it's futile to serve God, verse 14. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners? Well, everybody else, all the wicked people are partying and having fun and doing all this. And our life is so miserable. You call the arrogant, blast, evildoers are prospering. Even those who challenge God don't escape. So it's not fun to serve God. We've decided it really doesn't pay to serve God. Then there were some people who came to their senses. People like people who come to Calvary. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine. Note that. Who's the they? The ones who feared the Lord and honored his name. Just back it up through all of the other things we've talked about. Loving God, worshiping him, faithful in relationships, generous in offerings. Who are these? These are the ones that God remembers. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. What's he talking about? He's talking about that great day of the Lord when finally time will be no more and we'll move into eternity. And you might have looked around day after day and month after month and year after year and failed to see the distinctions between the so-called prosperity of the wicked and the frustrations of the righteous. And you might have asked yourself over and over again, where are the distinctions? When is God going to make a distinction? And in these brief 75 or 80 years or 90 years or whatever God gives you, maybe the distinctions won't be all that apparent to you. But there is coming a day when the distinctions will matter for all eternity. And you will see. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. In verse 18, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty, and not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from a stall. Now I ask you, says do you want to be in that other side how have I loved you I picked you out of a crowd and made you a child of the living God I took my son my only son my beloved son And I hung him on a cross between your sin and your damnation. 
And he paid the price of your sin. I put you in precious relationships, in covenant, in the people of God, that you might look after each other and love one another. And I blessed you so you could be a blessing, so that you could be generous, and I'm generous to you. And I help you serve me. Although I could do everything myself at the command of my voice, I invite you to be part of this great enterprise. So, what will it be? Covenant or contract? A covenant of eternal love? You were chosen by love to love? Or a contract? You want to be a hireling? You want to be a worker? You want to get wages for what you do and the very little that you do? Is that, we, is that the relationship we want to have with each other? And besides, when you come knocking on my door and tell me that, you, that I owe you, what do I owe you? <laughs> Beloved, what does Jesus owe us? As we're confronted one more Sunday at the Lord's table with the picture of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross with nails through his hands and through his feet for your sin and my sin. Tell me, what does Jesus owe us? So stop turning away from God's decrees and start gazing at our covenant with deep, deep gratitude. Communion is the celebration of our covenant whereby the living God once again when we gather at this table says, I love you. And the only response that makes any sense is I love you back, oh God. Would you stand as we pray? Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us for being so lame. You have spared nothing to bring us into a love covenant with you. And, oh God, forgive us for turning up our noses and looking at our watches and bringing blemished, pathetic, second-hand nothing to you. Would you help us, oh God, to do much better? Because you are truly worthy of our honor and our praise. And all the glory goes to you, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. A love problem will always become a worship problem. And it will become a relationship problem. It will become an offering problem. And it will become a surface prob service problem. And the Lord God loves us and will not withdraw his love from us.
and he calls us to that covenant of love that we might know it and might live with great gratitude and deep, deep commitment to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Shall we stand together and pray? Father, another Sunday we stand amazed in your presence. Amazed that you would love us. There is nothing in us that deserves the least of your favor. And so, O oh God, you have demonstrated the most incredible love possible. You have chosen to love the undeserved. You have chosen to love the sinners. You have chosen to forgive us and to bring us into your family and to assemble us. And you remember us in your book of remembrance. And you are collecting your treasured possession. And you are coming again for us that we might be with you forever to experience the reality and the fullness of that love forever and ever and ever. And so today we pledge our allegiance to you, O oh God, our loyalty to you, because you are truly worthy of our honor and our praise and all the glory which goes to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen.